I have heard regularly from Chinese Canadians who are pointing out that the first targets of foreign interference from China are always Chinese Canadians. That it is diaspora communities themselves that far from being, as some have chosen to suggest, perpetrators of foreign interference are actually targets of foreign interference. So from the Prime Minister's comments earlier today as he was uh, fielding questions about the broader issue of uh, Beijing's interference in Canada and Canadian elections or the electoral process and, of course, the announcement he made yesterday about a special rapporteur uh, to oversee uh, the investigation into all of this and make some recommendations, which could at some point include a public inquiry. But, yes, a specific question put to him. And it concerns an issue our next guest has written extensively about, including her latest for the Toronto Star about the fact that for many Chinese Canadians, uh, this has been their reality and that they have spoken about this, reported this, warned governments about this interference and feel as though maybe all of that's fallen on deaf ears. So I, th- I think in that context, a lot of the revelations about uh, interference isn't or shouldn't be a big surprise. Well, joining us to talk more about these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, author and journalist uh, Joanna Chu, a reporter with the Toronto Star and author of the book China Unbound. Joanna, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Oh, hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Uh, Well, as mentioned, the prime minister was asked kind of specifically about this Mm -hmm. issue, which, as I say, you've been writing about. But what what did you make of his comments, first of all? Yeah, I wonder if he was um, responding directly to our article yesterday, because um, I think there has been kind of an absence of Chinese Canadian voices, um, including ones that are now in their 60s or 70s who are, you know, understandably feeling a little uh, peak that they've been talk, trying to talk about it for decades. And mm-hmm. uh, suddenly now, finally in 2023, it is front page news. Right. Um, so I think, you know, the Prime Minister's comments today were a welcome departure from some of his initial comments when the news first broke which was that it might be racist to, um, you know, talk about these things, which isn't just a kind of a government response uh, as of recently, but has been in the past when CSIS former head uh, Richard Fadden tried to warn Parliament and media about foreign interference back in 2010. But that touched off a really angry response, including allegations that he was being very racist and um, that he should be fired. So, yeah, I think we have come, you know, made some progress in uh, wanting to have some nuance in these conversations and to take foreign interference seriously, not just from China, but from other countries. Faces has publicly identified, like Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran. Yeah. Well, look, I, I can get it at, at one level, you know, the concern with, you know, the, the slippery slope of uh, accusing or, or questioning mm-hmm. the loyalty of, of Chinese Canadians. But it's important to understand the nature of interference by mm-hmm. China's government, the, the interests that they're trying to advance and how that puts Chinese Canadians and, you know, the diaspora community in, in a very awkward position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's complicated. Um, but the best way I think to handle it is to uh, tackle it head on, to have as much nuance and expertise from the Chinese Canadian community as possible. Um, so, you know, my book and reporting tries to provide that larger historical and also international context. It's not just Canada grappling with these issues. Other places where, especially where we've seen a lot of Chinese immigrants settle, 
uh, like Australia, UK, the US, uh, have been dealing with these interference issues and intimidation, harassment of these newer or even older immigrant communities. Um, I've been hearing that anyone uh, who's not even Chinese <laughs> ethnically but has a Chinese name find themselves getting these threatening phone calls. Um, so it's happening everywhere. Um, and it's definitely uh, kind of an overdue conversation. As you alluded to, I mean, you know, the, these warnings go back many years. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, these these issues aren't new. Maybe some of the specific allegations that have come to mm-hmm. light are new. But, you know, based on, on everything you've written and reported on over the years, I, I don't imagine you were all that surprised by what, what's come to light more recently. Yeah, no, I think it's almost kind of giving voice to some of these uh, open secrets, open knowledge among Chinese-Canadian communities, um, including uh, things like cash donations, um, Chinese consulate or its obvious proxies with close links to the consulate, trying to target and um, support certain political candidates. And often, you know, the needed nuance we need is that some of these candidates might not know they're being supported. Um, I think the Chinese government, I, I lived in China, has this kind of really broad reaching and kind of paternalistic view that if you're uh, ethnically Chinese, you um, are basically, you should be loyal to the motherland. So we see names of Chinese Canadian politicians in some of these lists. Uh, like in 2018 and mayor level um, elections in Metro Vancouver, where a group uh, offered $20 to anyone uh, as a transportation subsidy to vote and provided a list of names, mostly Chinese Canadian politician names. And when we asked these politicians if they knew or anything about what was going on, they were really um, uh, firm in saying they had no idea, did not endorse whatever this was and that they weren't sure why they were included on this list. So maybe they were included just because they, uh, being Chinese-Canadian, are assumed to have these loyalties. Um, So it's complicated, and a lot of times, um, in this case, RCMP did investigate because it could be voter manipulation, but overall, Canada does not have robust set of laws and protocols, monitoring mechanisms to um, figure out what's happening. Especially, um, I try to stress that this is getting more attention because it reached a federal level. You know, 11 federal candidates allegedly got these uh, cash donations linked to the Chinese government. Uh, but it's been happening on in small towns, cities. The Vancouver mayor and city councillors have talked about the pressure they receive. Um, so it's happening in all levels of government and any response, any public kind of inquiry or counter-interference uh, new um, measures, I think, need to uh, realize that grassroots groups, individuals, and um, much local-level politicians are as impacted, if not more, uh, than the MP level. It was interesting last week that Director CSIS was testifying before a Commons Committee, and, and he made reference to an organization that maybe a lot of Canadians have never heard of, the United mm-hmm. Front Work Department, which is uh, you know branch of, of China's government. Yeah. It's very much focused on these kinds of efforts abroad, yeah. and, and it receives you know even more funding, as he pointed out, than, than China's mm-hmm. foreign ministry. So oh, let's yeah. look at the question of you know why. What is the, the point or the purpose of all of these efforts? Mm-hmm. So if you think about kind of Beijing's point of view, and I think we do need to try to understand the world from, you know, President Xi Jinping's perspective, when you look at Chinese history and you know that they've had kind of these cycles of 
um, imperial dynasties. And, um, you know, in early uh, 1911, 1912, um, the last dynasty was taken down, and they were taken down by people who were led by overseas Chinese migrants. Uh, people like Sun Yat-sen, who studied in Hawaii and kind of got in touch with uh, revolutionaries, and um, he amassed funding from wealthy overseas Chinese merchants to bring down this last dynasty. Um, you know, revolutions in the past, there were some links to kind of outside groups. So, you know, people in China and the leadership is really aware of this history, and, and they see that people are kind of voting with their feet in China. They're not happy with the repression, the you know, the amazing levels of repression and censorship in China. So they're leaving the country. They're moving to places that have a good reputation for human rights, like Canada. And China, the government is scared that these people can, you know, have that outside influence, uh, you know, have those resources to amass to be an outside external threat to their legitimacy. Um, and they have the cultural clout and connections because they may have family and connections and a good reputation among Chinese people. So the United Front is really um, dedicated to trying to make sure that narratives around the world, um, particularly among overseas Chinese, um, are friendly to China and are not adversarial to China. So I've heard stories of church choir groups being infiltrated by people connected to the Chinese consulate in Canada because that's how concerned they are. They think no one's too small to be a potential, basically, outside revolutionary. Um, and in addition to that, I think what we understand even less is how the United Front is also tasked with trying to co-opt uh, what they would call actual foreign foreigners, so people... Um, maybe, you know, basically white elites, um, international elites who um, may be convinced to be more friendly to China. Um, China does this through offering them VIP paid trips, like endless banquets, um, trying to get business people, politicians around the world. Um, it's, it's not illegal. It's basically trying to use China's resources, uh, money, basically, to convince uh, influential people around the world that it's better to be pro-China. Well, it's interesting. Tomorrow I see there's a press conference, a number of uh, multicultural community organizations like the Canada Hong Kong League, the Uyghurs Rights mm -hmm. Advocacy Project, mm -hmm. and others. Uh, they're going to be calling for the creation of a, a foreign influence registry. I mean, are, are mm -hmm. there other steps we can be taking in the meantime with all this mm -hmm. debate around a public inquiry to, to better address mm -hmm. this? Yeah, I think the appointment of a special rapporteur that's not uh, part of political party might make sense depending on who that person is. In the past, I'm a bit wary because some so-called independent consultants in China have actually vested interest in Chinese doing business in China. So we'll see who you know this independent rapporteur is who might make suggestions on ways forward. A public inquiry, um, you know, some people have cautioned that a lot might be redacted and might not be, um, you know, very. Um, like open and transparent as right. much as it can be. Um, and in some cases, maybe relying on people who are vulnerable, such as Chinese Canadians, to stand up and testify about things that happen to them. Um, so there's pros and cons. Uh, a foreign actor registry, Australia has it. The U.S. has had it for quite some time. U.K. is considering it. And a lot of it is based on volu volunteering that information. It will 
legally required to self-register if you are connected to a foreign state. Um, and while there's limit to that because basically it's voluntary in Australia when I was doing research in 2019, um, people did tell me that they saw less brazen attempts at intimidation and harassment because the existence of um, their new suite of counter foreign interference laws sends a message that the government cares, it's watching, and that it basically it's not like a welcome mat for foreign meddling which some argue Canada is providing because of the lack of really any infrastructure or legislation or protocols uh, on foreign interference. We'll see where it all goes from here. In the meantime, your latest, it's up at thestar.com, and we mentioned your book as well. It's called China Unbound. Joanna, thanks so much for joining us here today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. All the best. Take care. Uh, That is uh, author and journalist Joanna Chu. Uh, Her latest, uh, as mentioned, thestar.com, the headline, Chinese interference in Canada. Chinese Canadians say they reported it for years and were ignored. And just imagine, you know, the the stress of a situation like that. Once you realize that maybe you've been a target of that. And so you look to your country's government, the Canadian government, to, to take it seriously and to do something about it and just feeling like you're ignored. You know, that's that's frightening at, at some level. So, yeah, it's disturbing to hear that, you know, there have been reports about this for many years and just haven't been taken seriously. And we also mentioned, uh, again, Joanna's book. It's called China Unbound. So this is a topic she's written extensively about over the years, and we appreciate her uh, insights and expertise on all of this. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here. Lots still to get to on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, Parliament is back. MPs are are back in Ottawa. And uh, soon attention will turn to a federal budget. And it's going to be interesting to see what the fiscal policy is uh, moving forward here from the federal government. There's a, a new report out today from the Coalition for a Better Future calling for more of a focus on growth, uh, trying to set us up for success internationally. Uh, the scorecard report, uh, you can find more at CanadaCoalition.ca. But joining us to talk more about it is the co-chair of the Coalition for a Better Future. Lisa Wright is a former federal cabinet minister, former conservative member of parliament, co-chairs this uh, coalition alongside a former liberal member of parliament and cabinet minister, Anne McClellan. Ms. Wright, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Really appreciate it, Rob. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I think this is a really neat initiative, both in terms of the the uh, multi-partisan or bipartisan nature of it, but, you know, the, the optimism here, the focus on, you know, setting Canada up for success. How, how did this coalition come together in the first place? So in 2021, as we were coming out of COVID, the realization was that people can actually collaborate across different parties and between the provinces and the federal government and private sector and the um, community-based people, the civil civic society folks. Everyone cooperated when it came to COVID. And the question then was, well, as we come out of COVID, what's going to happen to the economy? And how can we work together in order to ensure that we have a plan for long-term growth? And, And what does that mean at the end of the day? So uh, Anne and I have uh, are the co-chairs. We have an advisory council, and we decided the path we would go is to create a scorecard that allows us to measure indicators of how well the economy and how well Canada is doing. And we're going to measure it every year until 2030 to hold folks accountable. Right. And we're at an interesting moment here as, as we're still kind of emerging from COVID. We've been dealing with inflation. That's been a huge challenge and, you know, global economic concerns. So where does a, a broader, longer term growth strategy fit into dealing with some of these shorter ter- term challenges? 
Well, the short term is extremely important, but we really have lived the last 10 years only on the short term, quite frankly. We've had seven federal elections. Five of them have given us minority governments, and in none of them have we had any discussion about long-term economic growth. And that's, that, that is actually seen in the fact that, as a nation, we're falling behind. We're doing worse on the prosperity index. Our GDP to capita is going down, our medium wage, how much money people have in order to pay for things that they like, that's going down. So you have to have a long-term plan. Those things aren't fixed by waving uh, a program around or they're not fixed by having more money being sent out to Canadian families when they need it. You need to have a plan to grow the economy that involves both, as I said, the not-for-profit sector as well as the for-profit sector, and the, and the government has to help facilitate with public policy. Right. So, I mean, right now, looking at this, this scorecard, there's some, some cause for concern. There is cause for concern. I certainly have a yellow flag going here. And the reason why it's a yellow flag is that some of the stuff that really impacts Canadians is how much money you have to spend at the end of the day. And in the case that we're seeing this year, that number is going down. And if coupling that with inflation going up and cost of living going up, it's going to have a really big impact. And you know what, Rob, who's getting hurt the most? It's the younger generation. This is a generational divide on who is really getting hammered by the current economic conditions. And those are the ones exactly who need to know that there's a long-term economic plan so that their future looks brighter. It's interesting, you know, the point about finding a balance between meeting the needs of today and looking at the challenges of tomorrow, because part of what you're calling for here is, you know, for Canada to have a plan that addresses the environment, that addresses emissions reductions, but that in the short term, you know, we're, we're going to be in, in big trouble if, if we don't have our energy sector uh, thriving and contributing. So how do we balance, you know, the economic needs uh, of, of meeting energy demand and developing Canadian resources with those longer-term challenges of, of addressing the environment? So one of the key metrics that we also have of the 21 is measuring how we're doing on what's called our current account, which is basically our export-import trade balance. And right now, if you take a look at the number, it looks okay. It's at zero. We're at balance. But here's the thing. If you remove oil and gas exports from there, it becomes a bad picture. Mm -hmm. And it just shows you that as public policy moves you out of utilizing and exporting oil and gas, then you're going to have an impact on the trade account, which has an impact on your wages and your GDP. And it just continues that kind of fall into an area Canada doesn't want to be in. We want to be a very strong country in the G7, and we want prosperity. And you have to plan your way out of it. You just can't pull on one lever and then hope that it all works out. So when it comes to to specific policies, is is this about advocating a specific path to growth, or is it about just getting our, our political leaders to think big, how we grow our economy, how we attract investment? Like, what does that path look like? I think the offices of members of parliament and ministers in Ottawa are filled with reports that have already been put together by really good Canadians that have studied the issue of what do we need to do to be more productive and to create a better economy. And the issue is that they have not been utilizing these reports, to put it very, very bluntly. They haven't been implementing. So what the, what the coalition is saying is, we need you to start implementing your plans. We need urgent action on these matters. Because as we show today, it's actually not, we're not trending in the right direction in a lot of these things. Now, in one area, I'm going to tell you, Rob, we're doing well. Clean tech investment, 
we're doing very, very well. And Indigenous participation in the workforce, another really good highlight in the scorecard. But the big metrics of how we're doing as a country, we are continuing to fall from 2011 and 2015, quite frankly. So these are things that the government has to be aware of. And it's more than just words in a budget. It has to be about actions and plans and cooperation with the business sector to get it done. Well, you've been on the inside, I mean, both in government and in the opposition. I mean, what, what is it about the political culture or just, just politics in general that, that's, that's an obstacle to this? We have a really good advisory council, and we just did a debrief on the last two days of our, of our events. And that really was the central question that we asked ourselves. How do we help the government to implement the policies that need to be implemented? Because if you look at the United States, Joe Biden, in a very divided Congress, in a very polarized political environment, has passed two, three major pieces of legislation that needed agreements of divided people in order to promote the long-term prosperity of their country. And we can't seem to get it done here in Canada. So it is a, it's a question that we're all kind of seized with. How do we help the government to do what they need to do? How do we encourage them? But I would say this. I would say that one of the pieces of the coalition that's attractive to our 142 members is that we are cross-partisan. Ann and I do wear partisan suits. I am a conservative. She is a liberal. But when it comes to advocating for a long-term growth and economy, we all have a responsibility to do that. And it actually is something that you should have partisan politics put to the side. And, And we hope that we see that. Indeed. Well, much more as mentioned, CanadaCoalition.ca, the Coalition for a Better Future. Lisa Ray, thank you so much for joining us here today. really appreciate this. I appreciate your time, Rob. Thanks a lot. All the best. Take care. Uh, that yeah. is Lisa Raitt, uh, former cabinet minister, I believe was also interim conservative leader for, for a spell, was a uh, member of parliament and is co-chair of the Coalition for a Better Future. So you've got a conservative in Lisa Raitt, a liberal in Anne McClellan as the co-chairs of this organization. I think we've got to do better we got to think big. We need a strategy that focuses on the long-term success of Canada and the Canadian economy. And at the moment, we're not doing very well. So their scorecard has some, some causes of concern there, as she mentions. Uh, wages are not keeping play in pace with the cost of living. Median wages have fallen in real terms since 2019. People's purchasing power is being affected. You know, these kinds of things. And... and we just don't have. There really isn't. And, and that's an indictment of the current government. I know they're trying not to be partisan here. But the current government is responsible for fiscal policy. We just don't have a growth strategy. Will we see something of the sort in the upcoming federal budget? I, I would say don't hold your breath, but I guess we'll find out in due course here. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.